Whenever Jesus gives us a parable, there are often many, many layers to it. And this one, of course, is no different. This parable itself is again told to the chief priests and the elders of the people, and it's quite easy for us to see that Jesus is equating the chief priests and the elders with those wicked tenants from this parable who beat, stoned, and killed the emissaries of the landowner that are known as the prophets of the Old Testament, and then eventually would kill the son, namely Jesus. Uh, Jesus is in many ways foreshadowing what will eventually happen to him. But for me, when I was praying with this passage throughout this week, there was another passage in Scripture that kind of came to mind that was equated with this one for me in prayer. And it's the fall of Adam and Eve. And in many ways, if you take these two passages together, this parable in our gospel and the fall of Adam and Eve, I believe they are a wonderful personification of a primordial fallacy humanity has believed about God going back to almost the very beginning. So let's go back to the beginning, shall we? To the garden, to Adam and Eve, who were living in that garden. It's not unlike a vineyard, like the the parable that we just heard. And in that garden, Adam and Eve had everything that they could have ever wanted. They had everything taken care of for them. Every need was addressed. There was nothing lacking to their earthly existence. The only thing, of course, that God asked them to do, or rather not to do, was to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But beyond that, their entire earthly spectrum of needs was taken care of. And yet, and yet, in the third chapter of Genesis, that serpent starts to put the bug in Eve's ear. The serpent asks Eve, did God really say that you couldn't eat the fruit of the trees of this garden. And further, the serpent essentially tells Eve, you know the real reason why God doesn't want you to eat the fruit of that tree is because he knows that if you eat it, you will become just like him. Now, I think it's really, really important for us to understand what the evil one is getting at in that statement because it has implications for us in this gospel too. The evil one in this temptation is painting God as someone who is not a benevolent lawgiver. Rather, the evil one is painting God as someone who wants to keep us, his creatures, under the strictest of controls. Because God, in the evil one's temptation, doesn't want us to reach our full potential. He he doesn't want us to reach our full potential because if it did... It would threaten his supremacy over us. Again, the evil one going back to that temptation and says, yeah, the the real reason God doesn't want you to eat that fruit is because you would become just like him and you would usurp him or threaten him, which is why he wants to keep you in check. And at the heart of this temptation, brothers and sisters, is one fundamental lie. The lie that God and human beings are somehow rivals with each other. And that any concession we make as human beings is to our detriment. That God knows something we don't. That God has something that we don't have and that he chooses not to give to us. Because what God has given us is seemingly insufficient for our happiness and for us to reach our full potential. And to surrender to God in this warped view is not an invitation to a deeper life, 
but a denigrating and dehumanizing act. And so Eve takes the apple, and Adam takes it too, and sin enters into the world. And yet, isn't this attitude so prevalent throughout this parable that we just heard? Just think about it, for the tenants in this parable, the landowner let them live in his vineyard. He let them have run of the entire place. We don't hear all of the details about what life was like in that vineyard, but you have to think it was pretty good. That they had pretty much every need taken care of, not unlike our first parents. They were wanting for maybe almost nothing. And yet as it was in this parable, so it was in the garden itself, that original bliss would soon unravel. Because those tenants saw their landowner, someone who was limiting their full potential. And so they rebel against him and rebel against the servants that he sends. But notice in particular what happens when the landowner sends the son. When he sends the son, thinking they will respect my son. What, what reaction does it provoke? There's a particular ire and a particular rage that the son provokes among the tenants. Because in seeing the son, the tenants see the personification of the one thing that God has seemingly withheld from them. The one thing that God has that he won't give to those tenants, the inheritance. And in their warped view of things, they think that the only way to achieve that inheritance is to kill the son and to take that inheritance from him. Again, all of this born out of a mistaken idea that the landowner is somehow a tightwad rather than someone who is who's wonderful and generous. And again, in this warped vision, God is someone who keeps his greatest gifts to himself and doesn't want us to reach our full potential. That is what they see when the Son is sent to them. The greatest gift of this landowner, the one that they would hopefully respect. And of course, it doesn't elicit unfeigned love, but rather resentment and loathing. So that's why those tenants are so angry, why they are so envious of the son, and why they eventually kill him. Now I say all this reflecting on these two passages, brothers and sisters, because if we really looked in the mirror, I think all of us can admit that this lie is so prevalent among our lives. All of us have fought along this same way over the course of our lives. Every single one of us has. The times when we think that God's plan, especially in areas of marriage and sexuality, are insufficient for our happiness. Or that God is a threat to our supremacy and how we spend our time on the weekends going to Holy Mass. Or that to surrender to God and to his plan is a detriment and at the expense of our own autonomy. I think in my own vocation of a priest maybe not being obedient to his bishop. Whatever the situation Whatever the circumstances, this lie is often at the heart of why we choose to rebel against God when we sin. And when we do, we have to kind of throw up our arms and realize, yeah, in, in these moments, we're, we're no better than Adam and Eve or any of these tenants we hear in this parable. But the good news, brothers and sisters, is that God, our Father, is not a cheapskate. He is generous and ridiculously so. From the very beginning of time, our God has poured every single gift of his into his son, into the second person of the Trinity. 
And by becoming one of us, the word made flesh, the son, allows us to receive of that same inheritance that is the son's. Because God realized that, yeah, in and of itself, we do not receive the inheritance of God, but through the son, you and I can. What were those words that were spoken over Jesus by the father at his baptism? This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Those same words are spoken over each of us by God the father at our baptism. This is my beloved son. This is my beloved daughter. The inheritance that those tenants wanted so much, the inheritance that we truly desire in the depths of our hearts, our God wants us to receive. And so it is that the more that we participate in who Jesus is, the more and the greater share of that inheritance we get. Jesus has that inheritance in and of himself, in his very being. We can receive it by participation in him. And again, the more we participate in Christ, in his life and in his grace and in his virtues, the greater share of that inheritance we receive. That is our God wanting us to receive our fullest potential. And it's what our God wants for us more than anything. Sure, it requires a great deal of humility to put aside our our shields and our fists thinking that God is somehow something to contend with, a competitor of ours, rather than someone for us to love and surrender our entire lives to. So brothers and sisters, may we move from a denial of God's gifts to a free and gracious acceptance of them. Knowing that to submit to God's commands is not to our detriment, but to our good and our flourishing. And may we always see our God as a benevolent Father who loves us, who wants what is good for us, and who desires to give us all of his greatest gifts.